Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. I received an email a few weeks ago out of the blue from a fellow Marine who had just left the service. A mutual friend of ours pointed him in my direction because he thought the two of us had similar experiences and might be able to find some interesting ways to collaborate. Jeff Groom had spent the previous several years as a Cobra attack helicopter pilot, mostly based in Hawaii and Okinawa. When we met in person a few days after that first email, I was surprised to find out that he had only been out of uniform for a few days, yet he already had a book published of his service memoirs. We had an interesting conversation that day and discovered that we did indeed share a number of views and experiences. Our time in the service overlapped somewhat, so that is to be expected, but we served in very different parts of the Marine Corps, with him in aviation and me firmly on the ground in tanks. Still, many of the frustrations and realities of military service today span the elements. Now, on this podcast before, I've discussed the problem of military pilots today not being able to fly often enough to gain the skills they need to be truly effective in the air. There are many reasons for this. Uh, Aging aircraft that are difficult to maintain, new highly complex aircraft that are extremely difficult to maintain, and not enough aircraft to go around, just to name a few. Whatever the cause is, the effect is to negatively impact morale and now drive pilots away from the service in increasing numbers. After reading his book, Captain Jeff Bigsby Groom and I chatted again. This time, we somewhat recreated our original conversation, but this time it was informed by the tales he recounts. His book, American Cobra Pilot, A Marine Remembers a Dog and Pony Show, is a highly satirical take on the current state of the Marine Corps that I believe most people who have served in any service within the past 10 years will find quite relatable. He leaves absolutely no sacred cow untouched for reasons you will shortly hear him explain. My motive for writing isn't so much the military as it's I'm trying to I bring in the American people into this. So this is kind of like a bigger, um, you know, I'm trying to bring up the the civilian military divide, which is, I think is of all the issues in the military right now that are, you know, screwing things up. I would say that's probably the biggest issue is that, that the American people, you know, are kind of out to lunch. And so, you know, the, what you see throughout the book, I think is the thing that I tried to tie it all together with was this idea of like consumerism and materialism, which is like rampant in American society. And like, we say that's because, you know, we're free to do what we want. You know, we have you know, it's the best country in the world, et cetera, et cetera. But I, my point is that I think that the American people um, and their military are at very different points right now. And, it, and it's dangerous because historically speaking, um, we didn't have a professional military. We had a, a drafty, you know, military, citizen soldier military. And then with 1973, they started the all-volunteer force after Vietnam, which is a good thing, ultimately. But with great power comes great responsibility. And if you don't um, tie the American people to their professional military in a way, if it's not by drawing, you know, our sons and daughters, and if it's not by, you know, war bonds and retooling our industry, 
the what connection is there anymore between the American people and the military that uh, you know serves them? And so, and the real only connection anymore is money in a lot of ways. And so, if we don't tax people for you know whether it's war or for um, contingencies. I just feel like there's a very dangerous disconnect between you know the American people and their military now. Where um, like in, in, the, in the initial part of the book, I talk about um, you know getting a guy's like you know it was a true story. A guy's like walking out. I'm walking out from the gym here in Southern California in 2012 and wearing this Marine shirt, which I hardly ever wear. And this guy's like, "Hey, are you in the Marines?" I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "Well, welcome home." And I, I said, "Well, I haven't. I'm just still learning to fly. I haven't deployed yet." And he came back with what could be called like a, a nonsense rebuttal. He said, well, you still stood on a wall with a gun, did you? I'm like, well, I just told you that I haven't deployed. And I started thinking about that. I'm like, he, and that, what it is, it's a form of cognitive dissonance. It's, it's, it was him trying to rationalize supporting the troops. But I took that away from him because he, you know, I said, why I haven't deployed? Like, I don't need your support. But he, he had to double down in a way. And so he said something that was completely illogical and completely like a non, you know, non secret group. So and that made me realize, you know, that the American people, like they want to support us, but their support has gone too far in the opposite direction. You know, I write about the, fur- the furlough chapter, all the, the, the programs that are available to us. I mean, it's absolutely insane when, when Chuck Hagel, uh, you know, said, oh, we're going to, we're going to send the civilians back to work because we want to make sure that they have morale and welfare above readiness and capability and he, he listed it that way he straight up said it like we want morale and welfare is now higher than missions and capability and like that to me is in a nutshell is what is wrong with um the, the relationship between the american people and their military like i said earlier in the podcast morale and readiness are to me directly correlated if you give me working aircraft and the resources to go you know play i'm for the most part happy like you, i don't i don't i'm not gonna ask for much else but because they, we, we don't have that, they're throwing all these other things, you know, the Lynx program, the, the Mifflet, the Fro, all these different programs that they throw, you know, to make people, quote unquote, happy. It's like, well, that's what the American people think we want. Are you sure that that's what we want? If it's a volunteer military, did we really sign up just for money? Well, I, I can say that I didn't sign up just for money. I signed up for a lot of other things than just money. So I think that's, you know, the underlying, the biggest theme, I would say, throughout the book. Um, outside of the aviation, outside of amphibious operations, is that the military as an institution, um, I would say, is in trouble because uh, there's no there's no longer a connection between uh, the professional military and the American people. So that was kind of, I would say that's one of the biggest themes of the book. Yeah, just like you know, 99% of the people that joined the volunteer military, we joined because you know we felt obligated in a way to like give something back to our country. And uh, for me personally, like as a little kid, like that's something that always the military lifestyle, you know, whatever it was about G.I. Joe and wearing camouflage, whatever that is, um, that appealed to me a lot, too. So something about, like, the military lifestyle appealed to me. Um, and so, you know, that was, you know, my reasons for volunteering and joining. And, you know, I remember my my parents, you know, were very much dead set against it. And they're like, yeah, why don't you, you know, use your engineering to do something else? I'm like, you know what, like, you couldn't pay me, you know, like, a million dollars to not join the military. Like, this is something I have to do, like, for myself and for my country. And so, like, that, you know, was my premise for joining. And in the first couple of years, I mean, things, like, went really, really good. But that's because, you know, I was in TCOM. And in TCOM, um, it's not really, like, the line, you know, the military. The TCOM is almost, like, it almost works like a capitalist system where, like, there's a, 
a product that the school has to produce, and if they don't produce it, you know, like, you know, there's feedback for that, you know, they get bad fit reps, you know, they get yelled at by hire. So, you know, flight school was very much like a fact, I called it, a, me and our friends called it a factory, where, you know, you come in with a number at a date, and then they're all, the, the thing that they're most concerned about is like, what day are you graduating getting your wings? And so things worked pretty smoothly in TCOM. Yes, there was like some hiccups in between the schools, you know, with some slinky effect there with, you know, uh, the schools slowing and starting. For the most part, when you were in training in TCOM, whether it was, you know, OCS, the basic school, and then flight school, like things worked pretty well. And then when you get to the fleet, you know, you kind of expect kind of the same thing where it's like, okay, like we have a product we need to make, you know, we need to you know, put rounds on target on time. Okay, that's the new mission here. Like in flight school, the mission was get your wings. In TBS, the mission was finish the, the six month course. You get to the fleet and you're like, okay, like I, I assume the same things are gonna apply. And then there was just this massive like resource gap where like we just didn't even have the time for the resources to accomplish that same mission, which just kind of, and that's kind of where within the first maybe like six months of being, you know, in my first fleet squadron in Hawaii, I kind of started, you know, see the writing on the wall. I'm just like, this system just, you know, I don't know what it is about it, but it just doesn't really work. And then on the first deployment, you know, that was when, you know, the, the rose cutter glasses were officially, you know, thrown off of the ship into the water, you know, forever. And so that was kind of my evolution from the, like being idealistic to being um, like upset about it all was, you know, the, the transition from TCOM to the fleet. And then especially on my first deployment where you can see in the first chapter of the book, you know, our, we were told essentially like, hey, this isn't, you know, tactical exercises, just political, don't worry. I'm like, like, if it doesn't matter here where the rubber meets the road, like where does it matter? Um, and, you know, I wasn't alone. Like you said, you know, ever, many, many other people have that same experience. And so, uh, you know, my friends that are writers are just like, yeah, this is exactly like what we see, but no one else wants to say. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, after doing my four years there, like, you know, I was kind of just just toasted with, you know, the lack of uh, priorities um, for, for our time and the lack of resources. Those are the two big things. Time and resources were just not allocated correctly to uh, accomplish the mission. Right. Well, and on the on the subject of readiness, I'm, I'm going to read a quote from your book. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, you write, remember, in today's military, being good on paper is being good enough. And as long as you can provide <laughs> paper copy documentation and the boxes are checked, that suffices for readiness. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, I, I write a lot about readiness and, and yeah. a lot of the issues that, that surround that. And, and it's great. I, I, I would love to hear you explain what, what the, the, the so-called readiness crisis looks like on the ground in an aviation unit. Yeah. And so the readiness crisis in the aviation unit, I think the best, I wrote that chapter, you know, why it pays to be a cobra pod. And that to me was like my vignette for like the readiness crisis in just like a couple pages is because, uh, at the end of the day, like what do, you know, military attack helicopter pilots get paid to do? We have a bunch of different missions, you know, whether it's escorting, you know, the, the assault package or doing, um, deep air support or whatever, but like the bread and butter of what we do is, you know, shoot an, a target with our, you know, helicopters and we're supposed to put the rounds on the target at the right time. Like that's just the bread and butter of what we do. And if we can't do that right, then we should probably not be spending our time doing other things, you know, that don't matter. And then some people would, you know, argue and rightfully so like, well, you know, family readiness is part of readiness. If we have, you know, our maintainers, you know, they're having trouble with their wives or family issues and they can't come to work, they can't work on the aircraft, et cetera, et cetera. Like I completely understand that and get it. But 
I think most Marines would agree with me that morale and uh, morale and readiness are almost like directly correlated. Like if you give us the time and the resources and the energy to try to achieve our jobs and try to obtain readiness, that has a lot to do with our morale. Um, so that's kind of like the, I guess maybe that's some of the time piece. Like we spend our time doing things that don't really matter because you know we have to check the box or we have to get the rosters done. Um, and if it doesn't have anything to do with readiness, then you know why are we doing it? Just because we can reach for it, you know, is the paper trail and you know it doesn't work. And then the resources piece of it is a whole other you know ball of wax. Like I sent you that that article about uh, the two major regional conflict strategy, and the small wars small wars journal is going to publish that I think in a couple of days, but. Um, the readiness piece of it with the resources part to me is that we just don't have enough bread to go around to feed all the mouths. Um, and when we have the Marine Corps has more combat aircraft than the country of Great Britain, like Britain's no slouch and the Marine Corps is by far the smallest of the services. We have more planes than Britain does. And so when you only have so much money to go around between the Navy, the Army, Air Force, Marine Corps, we just don't have enough resources to buy the bullets and the bombs to, to practice with. So a lot of times guys who go out to fly and you know, the TNR manual training and readiness manual says that, you know, per this flight, like you will carry, you know, 12 rockets, you will carry 300, you know, rounds of 20 millimeter in your gun. And then you brief it as if you're going to go fly with these resources, you know, because you get a scenario and you, you know, play make believe a little, and then at the end of the brief, you know, nine times out of ten, you have to say, oh, well, by the way, admin cleanup, like we don't actually have these, these rounds to put on our aircraft. And so it kind of dawned on me that the military today has become very much like a, a football team that is, you know, expected to play under the Friday night lights. But then during the week, you know, the, the, the extent of our practices, you know, the, the quarterback huddling the team, saying to play, hitting break, saying break. And then everyone just kind of, you know, stands around because we don't actually have the pads or the field or anything. We don't have the, the underlying support network to actually, you know, attain readiness. And then at the end of the day, we're supposed to, you know, play under the Friday night lights. So I think it's a combination of um, priorities are incorrect. We don't spend our time doing what, you know, creates mission accomplishment. And then the resources piece, which, you know, people in the military, you know, the, with a lot of rubber meets the road, we, we can't control that. But, um, that's just a huge, you know, strategic you know, congressional problem of, you know, resource allocation. Yeah, exactly. We, we write about this a lot, uh, looking at this issue about how we we try to do too much and we overcommit ourselves. And But then, uh, I to me, it looks like a lot of the, the resource problems are we rob Peter to pay Paul, essentially, with uh, we, we come up with these really elaborate, really complex weapons programs that eat up budgets just yeah. because they're next to impossible to achieve the, right. these ambitious programs. And so the money from that, there, there's a trade-off, and it comes from operations and maintenance. And right. so we were able to buy these things, or we buy these things, and then down the road, we can't maintain or support them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you heard the, the, the mag, or the... Uh, the wing they ate the MAGTAP. I mean, the Marine Corps just spent insane amounts of money, like upgrading almost every single airframe. I mean, you got all the new, you know, Zulus and Yankees, the Osprey, the C 53K, the F 35. I mean, they pretty much replaced everything. 
Right, and then and then these complex systems that we that that take forever to develop and and yeah. cost a fortune to buy. And then on the back end of it, they're they're I would argue that they're not engineered all that well because it takes so much uh, time, money, and effort to just to just to maintain them that you can't really fly them all that much. Right, and and I I personally asked the the old uh, deputy commandant for aviation uh, about this very issue at a at a CSIS event a couple of years ago, and. And I, I, he, he was, he brought it up in context of how he's always trying to, to find a way to strap on another sensor or another weapon to every right. single weapon, weapons platform. And he said this right after he went on this whole long explanation of how he couldn't get, get uh, enough hours for his pilots. Yeah. So I point out, well, wait a second, you just said that you can't get enough hours to train your pilots, but yet you want to make all of them multi-mission pilots, which requires even more flying for them to become proficient in this. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you balance that? And, his, and, and he, he had a very, very simple, very quick response, which was simulators. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, is, is that a valuable option? Can, you know, can, can simulators make up uh, for, for the lack of flying hours? Uh, yeah, and my, yeah, I said I flew in the fleet for four years, which isn't a big amount of time. But my experience in simulators is like they were very good at um, teaching you like switchology, like how do I you know go about like coding a Hellfire missile or um, for emergency procedures. They're very very good because you know the world's your oyster. You can create any type of you know engine fire. You can fail this system, whatever, and it's all you know free because you're not really gonna die. They're very good at emergency training, and then creating like great scenarios and you can learn switchology. But the thing that they lack is, um, you know, the seat of the pants, you know, feel is, is pilot, I guess we call it, is where, yeah, it's a sim, but it, at the end of the day, like, you know, it's not, it's not the real thing. So yeah, the simulator I think is good for initial training, but it's just, it doesn't, you know, hold a candle to actually going out and shooting, you know, figuring it all out. So, and then to back to your point about <laughs> the hours piece, that, that's one, that's one thing that it, I hate when I hear that the Marine Corps report its hours. It's like, oh, you know, well, I think last May the Marine Corps, you know, was asked via a Freedom of Information Act of some sort saying like, hey, you know, the press was like, how often are your pilots, you know, flying per month? And they, they said, well, we're not going to tell you, which obviously means like not a lot. <laughs> but even when they do tell people, it's like, oh, our pilots are getting 18 hours a month now, which is like much better than it used to be. It's like, well, it, it's not just getting hours it's what you do when you fly and that's kind of why i wrote you know like how often do we actually get to shoot real rounds next to real maneuvering marines in a real like live training scenario like not often and that's what we sh the metric we should be using but we have to count something and because we don't count what really matters we count what doesn't and so we say oh well, we flew 18 hours this month it's like well okay well if i flew or i drove you know a thousand miles down the freeway like straight in line as like a race car driver like yeah I, I logged a lot of hours you know driving my race car but does it really matter because i'm not putting my you know vehicle on the track and practicing what i actually need to practice um yeah so that, another thing that, that it was interesting i saw this past week you're tweeting about the marine corps and Army, air force and now they got some dough to maybe buy like a low intensity you know propeller aircraft like an at6 or something i thought that was really interesting yeah, the the light attack uh, program is one that they've been they've been talking about for a long time. I have right. it, uh, if if it was just that, I would I, I would not raise too many issues about it. But uh, yeah. it's uh, we, we've been we've been given some information that it's actually a, a, a backdoor way that uh, 
the Air Force is going to use to try to cancel the A-10. And uh, oh. the, the light attack fighter, because the, uh, the, the light attack fighter can't make up for that capability. And yeah. the, the, the plan basically is they get the, the light attack program approved. Uh, they say that in order to pay for this, we need to cancel the A-10. And then they drag their feet actually acquiring the light attack fighter. And then down the road, they just cancel the light attack fighter after the A-10's uh, been fully retired. And now we don't have any capability like that. Um, wow. So, that's yes, yeah. that's, uh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the, that's the way things work. Uh, so I was, I, I had the, so I, I read your book pretty much all in one setting, uh, yeah. at, at a cafe close by the house here. And, and I, I kind of chuckled out loud, which provoked a couple looks from some of the other people at the cafe as, yeah. uh, as I was reading your calculations, uh, about how your, how, how, how your pay came out. Uh, yeah. specifically and and again this is a got to remind everybody that this is uh uh partially a work of satire because uh, yeah. you write satirically that you made $50,000 per hour. Uh right. could you could you explain your your methodology and how you came to that conclusion? Yeah, so the, 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 the most of the chapters in my book are literally like little mini vignettes that I like had an idea, you know, for uh, like a I saw something that was like comical and I was like, Hey, like, I think I could make a, you know, like a South park style, like deeper, like more point about like what I just saw. And I, I, I wrote that chapter when I, uh, there was a bunch of like, you know, I think like fast food protests or something. People were like protesting, you know, like for a minimum wage or like, yeah, we want 15 an hour to like do our jobs. And then I, I heard that like, you know, pay per hour. I'm like, it's like, I wonder what I actually get paid per hour to like do like what is it that I'm actually being paid to do in the military and I you know my undergrad was in engineering so like I kind of like looked at the the units a little bit um you know pay you know dollars per year hours per year I'm like how would I need to divide these things to get my pay per hour and I was like okay I understand that so I have to divide how much I get paid per year which is you know dollars per year and you divide it by my hours per year and the um it, the units come out so you get dollars per hour and so as a you know oh three captain in hawaii uh with you know the bah in hawaii which is pretty significant after taxes i was you know you get paid around a hundred thousand dollars a year which is pretty significant and i so i said okay well how how much am i getting paid per hour and i was like okay well i fly 100 hours in a year which is not a lot it's like the minimum actually that our opnav, which is like our Bible for flying, says you have to fly this minimum just to be safe, 100 hours. And the first year I was in the fleet, you know, things weren't really working right, so I only got like 94. And a bunch of I me, mean, a bunch of peers, you know, were in the same boat. I was like, I got 94 hours. I was like, okay, so if I divide 100,000 by that, I'm getting paid $1,000 an hour. Cool. I was like, but like, I don't just get paid to fly the helicopter. Like, I get paid to do something, you know, more complex than that. Like, the news people just fly a helicopter, like marine pilots. Are flying for a different reason to shoot you know a target i'm like well how often did i shoot in one year well i shot you know like seven times okay i do the math i'm getting like you know four or five thousand dollars an hour like but i'm not just getting paid to shoot i'm getting paid to shoot a target while there's marines on the deck you know closing in on that objective and i'm covering them so to speak and so i looked through my logbook and just using my memory i'm like okay i really only did that one time when we were at i it integrated training exercise in 29 palms which is really the only place you can kind of do that like highest level training because you know it's a huge you know desert playground for training and so i'm like okay well the only time that i actually shot you know live rounds while marines were maneuvering in a close air support scenario where i actually had to like 
you know, understand where the Marines were, where they were moving, what angle was I shooting at? Like all those things mattered. I did that one time <laughs> in a year and I was talking to a buddy and so that the pay comes out. So I flew two hours of that flight. So the pay comes out. So a hundred thousand dollars a year divided by two hours per year. I'm getting paid $50,000 an hour. So obviously, you know, it's satire. I'm blowing things out of proportion. Like flight planning is a huge part of what pilots do. And so it wasn't just that, but I think I made the point pretty well that, you know, I'm trying to destroy this idea that, you know, all the services do that. Like, oh, our pilot's getting this many hours. It's like, yeah, I got it. We get this many hours. But once you learn the basics of flying your helicopter or your aircraft, you know, you need to, and there's another podcast I, I saw that you did about, you know, with, a, I think it was an Osprey pilot, like a major saying like, we need to get 30 hours in a month just to get above the block and tackling basics and actually really, you know, do the advanced stuff well. And I, that was, you know, very well put. And so, you know, pilots are only getting four or five, six, you know, 10 hours in a month. Like that's not, that's hardly even maintaining, like doing the basics, right? We're barely breaking the rust off. And so that was the point I was trying to make in that chapter is that, you know, you can say, oh, we fly 20 hours a month, but we'll start digging a little further. What are you actually doing when you're doing the, you know, those 20 hours? Right. And, and it, that, that podcast was with Carl Forsling and, and it was based on a, on an article that he did. And I, that was a, that was an important really important point that he was making, you know, uh, and just from your estimation, <laughs> flying, a, flying a helicopter, you mentioned the, the 100 hour minimum, like mm -hmm. what, how, how good of a pilot can you be just by flying a hundred hours minimum a year? I mean, you can most, I mean, I, I was, you know, as a younger guy, obviously I was, I, you know, the first like year or so in the squad, you really like, you're growing, like learning to fly your helicopter. Once you get into like, you know, the aircraft commander realm, uh, you're, you get somewhat comfortable, which kind of can be more, it actually becomes more dangerous because most mishaps actually are between 500 total hours and a thousand total hours, which kind of makes sense. Cause when you're young, like, you know, you're, you're super scared and super aware, but then once you get to that 500 hour mark and beyond, you start getting comfortable and, you know, they say comfort kills people start getting more comfortable, which can be bad too. So, um, <clears throat> to your point about, you know, how good can you be if you only fly a hundred hours in the air? It's like, well, yeah, you can, you can do the basics, right. Of just taking off landing, you know, knowing your emergency procedures, but actually like, you know, dynamically maneuvering the aircraft, like it, it's maximum performance, like diving at a target and pulling up to a hundred percent, you know, torque and really being good with, with your machine. Like that's impossible at a hundred hours in the air, unless like the only thing you're doing is shooting, which like we hardly you know, do. So, and that's why the OPNAV says, like, you have to fly a minimum of 100 in a year. And if you don't, you have to get a waiver that says, you know, well, this person didn't get this. And, you know, so, yeah, at, at 100 hours in a year, you're just barely breaking the, you know, the rust off when you go fly, which is, you know, completely counterproductive. Because if the, if the only thing you're doing when you're going to fly is breaking the rust off, then it's just like, you know, like, it's, a, it's a big waste in a lot of ways. Yeah, you're not really growing. You know, no, you're not really not. gaining those skills. Well, so in your estimation, in an ideal world, how many how many hours not per year? Let's uh, let's bring it down. How many hours yeah. per week do you think a pilot should be flying? Probably like you know, probably two to three hops a week at two hours each. So you know, anywhere from like four to eight hours a week would be you know the best. Yeah. Nope. Okay. So, yeah. and that that also raises a raises another point. Because uh, something else that's in your in your book, I mean, these are you, you you write the memoirs of a pilot who doesn't fly all that often, a military pilot who doesn't fly all that often, yeah. And 
and but you don't get to go home. You don't get to hang out on the beach when you aren't flying. Uh, so you're but you're still competing for promotion, and uh, and so you have to fill your time somehow, and you have to you have to fill all those billet accomplishments on your fit rep uh, right. to compete for promotion. So when you aren't flying, what are you doing as a pilot? I mean. <laughs> Yeah, so when you're not flying, I mean, every pilot has a, a ground job in their squadron. So there's the upstairs shop and then the downstairs shop. So the upstairs parts of the squadron were the, were the administrative parts of the squadron that had the S1 administration, S2 intel, all the standard things that you see in other units, operations, guys will write flight schedules. And then downstairs, you have all maintainers and there's officers that are over them too. Um, but me, me personally, um, every every officer had their ground job, and I initially I was a schedule writer. I just would write the flight schedule um, for, the, for the next day, um, and working like with all the other guys that work in that shop. There's there's pilot training officers that like you know plug this person's going to fly this mission on this day, and then they arrange for the range time and then time uh, with airfield operations to get fuel. So they do all that stuff. So in operations, that's what you know an officer would do. But then downstairs. Um, those guys are really more traditional, like Marine officers, uh, the leadership piece, because they have, you know, anywhere from like 30 to like 60 younger Marines that are you know, mechanics that are, they're responsible for them. So those guys have a more traditional, I guess, from your, you know, experience, like leadership, personal aspect of it. Um, so if you're not flying in the squadron, you're either studying, you know, creating briefs to help fly. And then a lot of times you're pitching in your time to uh, help other people with their products because more senior people in the squadron have to, um, if they're getting flights or they're getting, uh, if they're doing what they call codes or they're getting, uh, they're progressing as a pilot. And that's a very much a group, a group project where people like everyone has to pitch in to, you know, to learn. So if you're not flying, you're either studying, you know, to fly, prepping to fly, like leading your Marines or helping you know run the squadron whether it's you know administratively making sure people have their orders to go to schools um the s4 you know we have logistics too so if I, I was the the s4 uh, officer in charge for a while so we had to like move all of our gear from oahu to the big island to train so you have to go through all the you know hoops to make sure it's you know palletized correctly and all that stuff so yeah just because yeah i don't i don't know what it's like and it, i've heard but i have not you know, experience that I've heard that, you know, Air Force pilots are more traditional, like they just fly <laughs> and then other people, they have other specific, you know, jobs, I guess to, to make the difference between the two in the Air Force, their squadrons have like actual logisticians that are trained by a logistics school that go to the squadron to like do all that stuff. And then they have the pilots in the Marine Corps. You just pick up learning how to be a logistician from the younger Marines that work there that are actually like, you know, trained embarkers and, and what have you. So Marine pilots have to wear like, you know, two hats. And uh, we were told that in flight school, we really couldn't believe it. We're like, wait a minute, like, we don't just like flight school is like, you know, amazing. All you do is all you do is show up to work and fly. Like, that's not what the fleet's like. And the, and the instructors are like, oh, no, like this is this is the best it's ever going to be. Just wait. <laughs> Right. Well, from the conversations that I've had with Air Force pilots, uh, they they also don't fly very often. And yes, I think they do have uh, more robust, uh, dedicated support, uh, which means that the the Air Force pilots, when they aren't flying, have a lot of really ridiculous collateral oh. duties. Uh, <laughs> and that's one of the and that's one of the reasons why why the the Air Force is having such a big pilot crunch. 
uh, just because these guys want to fly high-performing aircraft, but yeah. they, they're, they're changing happy to glad on PowerPoint slides. Uh, right for some yep. for some ridiculous collateral duty. Well, I'm I'm kind of interested when to to hear that pilots are only flying 100 100 hours per per year. Yeah. And just knowing the way that performance evaluations happen in the Marine Corps, I'm I'm right. wondering how how are pilots judged? Like who are who are the ones that get promoted? Are they the best pilots or are they the ones who do the best job on uh, their their terrestrial duties. Yeah, it's, I mean, so just to the record, I mean, a hundred, the hundred hour thing is like, that's been just kind of about something that's happened in the past couple of years of things kind of like have come off the rails. Like most people, when people go on deployments like to Afghanistan or Iraq, people are flying a lot more just because like they're always, they always have something to do. But in the fleet, you know, we're, we're practicing to, to possibly go some places. Like that's where my, that's where, you know, my, my experience was in, you know, in Okinawa twice. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, you know, like if people aren't flying, like how do you, you know, actually progress? It's a really, really good point. And um, it's a lot of it is just as long as you just, you know, stick around and you you perform well. Like eventually, like your number will come up, but you just have to, you know, stay around longer because you don't get as much time. And then, you know, people that are the best performers, you know, like will uh, distinguish themselves and they'll get more resources thrown at them, you know, because there's only so much bread to go around. So. If you have, you know, four or five pilots and, you know, one of them is really standing out, like he's, you know, he breathes really well, like he flies really well. Um, he's, he's good. He has like a good tactical sense with the aircraft. Like he starts distinguishing himself, like the word, the word gets around, you know, like this guy's got his stuff together. And then that, you know, will he'll get more of the resources that way. So it is competitive in that way where like, you know, you're, it's a team effort, but at the same time, you're also competing, you know, to, to get more of the time and more of the bread to, to practice with. So yeah, it's. People do rise to the top, even if even if things aren't really working right. So it is competitive in that way. All right, very good. Well, so another thing that you describe in the book is the uh, Korean exercises, and this is aside yeah. from from the the current the current <laughs> right. politics and, and foreign yeah. policy issues that are going on. Uh, but I was I was just struck by by your description of of how those unfolded. Uh, one of the points that you that you raise again and again, and this is a big theme in in your book, is the um, the the mock amphibious landing that you did in in, in Korea with the the Korean right. officials watching yeah. from the bleachers. Right, and this is part of a bigger discussion that you you were having about the efficacy of amphibious operations in general. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, what are, what are your thoughts on on the approach, the the way the United States and the Marine Corps in particular approaches amphibious operations? Yeah, it's, yeah, when I, when I first saw that, you know, kind of in person, regardless of, you know, what that first email said, I'm like, it just kind of blew my mind. I'm like, if, if this is like our level of, of practice and like, you know, something's truly wrong. So I started digging and, you know, reading as much as I could about, you know, the history of it all. And the bottom line up front, big picture to my you know opinion is that these, the idea that we're going to do a, uh, a contested beach landing, you know, very like a, something similar to like an Iwo Jima or an Okinawa or a Taro or something like World War II era, like that is no longer, you know, a valid idea. And when the Marine Corps talks about, you know, maneuver warfare, like, you know, surfaces and gaps, it's like, well, what we, what we you know, sell ourselves on is what you know Bill Lynn calls the psalm from the sea. Like we sell this idea that we're just going to send as many people as we can, like into the teeth of the enemy that are just somehow waiting on the beach for us. 
and we're just going to overwhelm them, you know, by having more guys and more bullets and bombs than they do. And that's kind of what we sell. But the last time that happened, you know, was in 1950. And a lot of things have changed since then um, with anti-ship missiles. And the Marine Corps' doctrine itself was rewritten uh, in the 1980s because of anti-ship missiles. And we moved the ARG, the amphibious ready group, the group of three ships that comprises, you know, any of the basic MUs. We move that shipping to 12 nautical miles offshore of any enemy that has anti-ship missiles because we have to give you know proper standoff. But then that you know adds the point that that makes it a lot more complex because in World War II you know you could be within you know visual sight of the beach and you could you know put the Marines in it and it'll take I don't know how long, 30 minutes something like that something short. 12 nautical miles away distance is rate times time. If you're 12 miles away and our AEVs only go through the water at maximum of seven knots, you know, that's, you're looking at around two hours to get from the ships to the shore. And so that, that kind of made me realize like, okay, like, well, if we have to ride two hours to get to a beach, like, well, how do we support the Marines that are, you know, fighting their way onto some, some beachhead? Like we can't, we can't bring in heavy equipment until we have the beach, like aircraft, are pretty far out, you know, we don't have what we need to do this. And so the amphibious operations piece to me is that the Marine Corps needs to change and they need to change soon because if they don't, I got a bad feeling about right now, the Senate Armed Service Committee is reviewing all the different missions from the last, you know, like 30 years, almost like a Goldwater Nichols, like 1986 style um, review. And the latest article I read said that they're thinking about turning the Marine Corps into a counterinsurgency, you know, low intensity conflict force because they're not sure that the Marine Corps can even do, you know, a contested amphibious assault. And to say that we can do it, you know, means that we have to technically maybe practice it to be good at it, like the football analogy. And there was a good article by a reporter named Todd South in the Marine Corps Times uh, at the beginning of January, talked about we don't have enough ships to train for amphibious assault. We had, uh, I think, like 62 amphibious ships in the 1990s. Today we have 31 or two we want to have 50, and we're going to have uh, 38 by 2033. And so, in order to train at the MEB level, which is you know one size bigger, so a MU has like you know 2,200-ish Marines and sailors with those three ships. You know, the next step up, the Marine Expeditionary Brigade, is about 15,000. So we need that level to do a you know large-scale amphibious assault. And it's like, well, we can't even practice it why are we saying that we could possibly do it, you know, for real? And so seeing all that in person and like reading into it, it's just like, well, we don't have the connectors, you know, in the, the distance to, to go to the beach. And we, I don't know how, how we can, you know, accomplish this mission. So, you know, we had the EFE that came along that got canceled. Not, it was expensive, but more importantly, it was, it was you know, Gates um, reviewing it all and saying, Hey, like, I don't know that this is even a mission that we need to, you know, be responsible for anymore like who's going to oppose us on you know a beach like in world war ii you know the japanese held islands that were strategically important because we could put bombers on those islands and bomb mainland japan today you know what island in the middle of the ocean is actually strategically important that people talk about the chinese you know oh they're going to militarize these islands and the senkakus it's like well look look at these islands themselves just don't look at listen to the news just like just look at these islands on a piece of paper most of these islands are, are nothing more than like a rock just sitting in the middle of the ocean. It's like, well, what value does that have? And are we going to send, you know, thousands of men against this one little rock? I, I doubt it. And then 
Uh, on the flip side, are we going to do an amphibious assault of you know mainland China? Well, we'll know like we don't have the, the resources, and that's completely preposterous. And so, I'm completely a fan of what. Or I think the Marine Corps and amphibious operations are very they're they're necessary. Don't get me wrong, but this idea that we're going to send people into the teeth of the enemy, you know, they're waiting for us on a beach is an old thing, and that's kind of how we're you know procuring it. Like we just you know the Marine Corps just bought the ACV from BAE, the, the amphibious combat vehicle. Um, it's been developed forever, not forever, but uh, they just, you know, selected it after, you know, a couple years of trials. It swims at seven knots in the water, which is the same thing that the AAV does. And our new doctrine, yet Expeditionary Force 21, says that we have to stay 65 miles away. That came out in 2014. So it went from 12 miles to 65 miles away. So at seven knots, you're looking at nine hours. And I kind of make fun of that in the book. You know, it's like, well, here come these AVs after they just swam, you know, nine hours. It's like, well, okay, well, obviously they're not going to swim nine hours. And so that was kind of my evolution of thought on this thing. And now I've, I'd like to say that I've been kind of vindicated because I published the book in 2016, but, you know, didn't release it. And now, like, all these things are kind of coming through true, you know, with like, are, are we going to do these exercises or not? Like, is the Marine Corps actually going to do this amphibious assault stuff? Do we need to change its mission? So, um, yeah. We, I think we've kicked the can down the road too long and we're not willing to, to change. And so that might you know, end up biting us. Yeah, it definitely might. Uh, I'm going to be very interested to, to see how this, uh, uh, how this review comes out and to see what happens right. with the, the, the future of this mission. Because yeah. uh, it, it is a capability that we need. I agree wholeheartedly that yeah. uh, it doesn't make any sense to try to uh, go crashing across a... Uh, a heavily defended beach. Although we right. still we still train that way. I I participated yeah. in and and I think you and I talked about this before. Uh, I I participated in a big training exercise with First Marine Division back in I guess it was 2014, and that was exactly what we planned. We planned right. to come crashing across the beach uh, that was heavily defended, and we were trying to figure out how to do it. And I was just looking at the just looking at the map the the and the the threat laydown that we had there, uh -huh. there was this one stretch of beach that was heavily defended and then there was miles and miles and miles of beaches to the north that didn't have any enemy yeah. uh positions and and i was saying why don't we land there <laughs> and <laughs> and i got a lot of people that were just looking at me like i was crazy and yeah <laughs> Sorry, I don't. I don't really understand it. And you know, the Marine Corps actually. Uh, and this is something that from Marine Corps history that a lot of people overlook because we always the the Marine Corps just the way we we talk about history. We we love talking about the Iwo Jimas and the Tarawas, uh, right. just because those were those were big battles and there were a lot of casualties. And so, um, but unfortunately, uh, we 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 don't talk about the examples where we didn't lose as many people, like Tinian. Uh, was a great it was a great amphibious operation and it was actually like one of the best examples of the marines kind of practicing an early form of maneuver warfare um, mm -hmm. because instead of landing on the obvious beach like we did at Iwo Jima we landed on these really tiny little narrow beaches on the other side of the island that weren't heavily defended and we we landed on those little tiny beaches that you wouldn't even today you look on Google Earth and yeah. you, you look at these little tiny beaches where, where we landed. We landed huge amounts of forces, but it caught the Japanese off guard, and we were able to capture Tinian with relatively right. few casualties. And right. that's the way you conduct a, a, an amphibious operation. But unfortunately, we hype up the, 
yeah. um, the the high cost heroic battles like Iwo Jima, and we kind of ignore the the low cost, um, right. but high payoff battles like Tinian, because Tinian was a really important island uh, for later operations. I did um, not know. That. I'll look into that. I did not know that. Yeah, it was uh, it was one we. Um, it, it was kind of mentioned in passing. I didn't really learn about that one too much because, again, we spend so much time talking about the Iwo Jimas. Um, yeah. it, was, it was something that was kind of brought up uh, in passing when I was doing uh, uh, Expeditionary Warfare School. Right. And, 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 again, it was, it was in passing. And I went back and I looked at it and I said, why don't we talk about this more? Like, this is exactly how we should be doing these kind of things. Yeah. But that's not what we talk about. We, 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 spent, we spent weeks and weeks uh, uh, at EWS talking about amphibious operations. But every single one that we planned was to crash right across, right in the teeth of the enemy defense. Yeah. So we could get all the and, – and we'd set up all the products uh, to do all of that. And it's just yeah. – Right. Yeah, it was just a, a ridiculous way of doing business, and and right. and I get the there's the there's the argument that you have to train to do the hardest mission, and then uh, right. you know so you so you have have that that skill set. But if that's all we ever do, then no one ever even thinks about doing the doing the easier way. Unfortunately, yeah. You know, and it's, it's funny the the latest I'm sure you've seen that Nations Call, the latest Marine Corps commercial is like a massive amphibious assault. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it. I mean, it's a well-done commercial, but you know, it's portraying like you know the Marine Corps doing like our standard, you know, 1940. Like, let's just send you know, he did a little straight up the middle, like send everything we have from the ships onto the beach and take over. Right. Yeah, it, I, I have seen that. That is good. Uh, that um, it, well, I should say that that commercial is a whole lot better than the dragon slaying video. Yeah, they've they've made progress for sure. <laughs> um. So. Something re, reading your book, I, I I was struck just by the thought that you were writing this book while you were still in the service, and yeah, uh, and you, you mentioned this a little bit just just before. I, I'm I'm just interested here, kind of the expanded story of of what 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 prompted you, what motivated you to to write this book in the first place. Yes, yeah, I'd like to. Yes, yeah, when people ask, I get that question a lot. It's like, well, you know, how long did it take you, and you know, why did you write it, and I've been recently following some of the work of uh, Scott Adams. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a he's the guy that does the Dilbert cartoon. Right. But yeah, he he's really he really opened my eyes to. Uh, uh, I read one of his books called How to Fail at Everything and Still Win Big, and it's kind of like his journey of you know how he became like a successful cartoonist. Like, and he didn't have a goal to become a cartoonist. Like people think that way. Like, well, I have a goal, and I'm gonna set that goal way out here. And I'm going to do everything I need, you know, figure out what I need to do to achieve that goal. He's like, that's kind of what we hear all the time. He's like, but that's not correct. He's like, what he sees is the recipe for success is what he calls systems-based thinking. And systems-based thinking is you don't really have a goal. You just kind of like create something because you. he calls a system something you do every day that increases your odds of being successful in the long run. And he's like, I never, you know, I had a little, he's like, I had some artistic ability but then I worked in, you know, he worked in corporate finance for eight years and got all these, you know, corporate, you know, office jokes. And then, you know, he uh, thought that, you know, humor was pretty funny. He combined that with, you know, his artistic talent. And there you go. But he never had this goal of, well, I'm going to be a successful cartoonist. And I guess 
when people ask about the book, it's like, well, how did you, you know, go about writing it? And they're like, well, I, I didn't never really had a goal to write a book. It just came about because of my the systems that I have. And the systems that I would say I, I'm pretty disciplined with is, you know, I try to read a book every two weeks. If I don't understand something, I kind of like collect it. And then I start digging later until I figure out, well, why, if something doesn't make sense, I collect it and start digging. And that was kind of like the, the first seeds of the book it was like, I would see something happen in, in you know, the military. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really make sense. Why are we doing things this way? And so I collect it and then using a little bit of my sense of humor, I guess, the way I see things like satirically um, and like both things out of proportion to make them funny and make it a deeper point. Um, that was kind of like the synthesis for writing was it wasn't like a goal to write a book. It was just, you know, like this is what I I see and I read, uh, you know, some history and, you know, stuff like that. And so. Um, my starting point for the book wasn't a goal to write a book. It was just simply, you know, like I see what's wrong and I'm going to start putting it together. But yes, at one point, you know, after the first deployment, like, okay, I got to like, I got to put something together because this system just doesn't work. Like we have the money, the, the, the resources, time, like we don't have a, we don't have results. We don't have a product. Like, why is that? And could it be better? So there was a point when I was like, I committed to writing, but at that point it was kind of downhill because I'd already put together most of the, the chapters and it was just fleshing it out at that point. Um, so yeah, it was it was just a matter of collecting things that didn't make sense and then just arranging them and re-editing, re-editing, and re-editing, and you know, yeah. <laughs> so it's systems versus goals. So a lot of people, I think, tend to confuse those, but not confuse them, but they think that the way to you know create a book is like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna write a book. How do I do that? Okay, I need to do this, and it's like I never really thought that way. I just it just kind of came about. Huh. Interesting. Now, yeah. so the book is a um, is a work of satire, and uh, there were a couple points as I was reading the book where I had to kind of turn the page back to try to figure out that point where where did the satire begin or where did the satire end? And uh, yeah. so there's a there's a there's a definite blending of that, uh, and yeah. there there are, and and you don't really pull any punches because there are uh you go after some some sacred cows uh yeah. in the in the book you know, some hot right. button you know kind of political issues and i'm sure that yeah. there are some people that are going to take some issue uh yeah. with with some of these because you uh have you uh what what kind of a response have you have you received from uh from some of those uh some of those issues like i.e um, the sexual assault issues and, and those, those kind of things. Um, well, obviously, you know, the book's been out for just two months now. It's self-published. So I don't have, you know, the, you know, Simon and Schuster behind me, you know, promoting the book. I'm just a small fry right now. So I have to, you know, go about doing it myself. And so most of the people, you know, in the military that I've given to, like I said, have loved it. And then, but I, to your question, I haven't had any, like, negative feedback yet what i did do actually is uh i went back and like edited the manuscripts you know when you write a book you can go back and for a fee you can edit your manuscript and that's what i I did that because like after talking to a couple people that you know i know what's true and what's not but obviously my readers don't which is part of the funny part of it but also part of the you know like i don't want to um you know because i'm using real people and i'm using things that they actually said but i'm like creating other things too. So I put a little disclaimer in the front of the book that says, you know, like this is a work of satire that blends fiction and nonfiction. Like if somebody is cited as saying something um, and it's, you know, the notes say that they said it, that's attributable to them. There's no citation. Like that's part of my story and that's not attributed to them. And it doesn't reflect, you know, their views or their only the views of the author. And so, um, yeah, I haven't had any, you know, feedback yet, but yeah, to your point, like I, I feel like the only way to 
to try to maybe change the system is to truly like poke you know the machine in the eye in a lot of ways and, and you know create controversy because controversy will you know make people maybe take note if i tried to write a book about and that was one of like when i sat down to actually you know create the book i'm like well, what should be my you know motive for writing what style should i use it's like well you know, if I write a book like a, a Nate Fick type book, like, you know, obviously that guy had an awesome experience in the Marine Corps, like no one would really read it. And like, like I was talking to Bill Lynn, it's like if somebody wrote a book about like how the way things should be, like no one would read it. No one would care because, you know, everyone writes a book like, well, this is, you know, my men are my heroes. And then, you know, this is how things should be. Like those are a dime a dozen. But if somebody like comes out with a Vonnegut style, you know, terminal captain type book that just really like shreds like the generals and the politicians like i think that actually could maybe make people you know take note and so that was kind of my motive for writing was yes i am swinging through the fences and pulling no punches but um i feel like if, if that's the only way to maybe get um to shed light on this issue because you know like i said i wrote it you know two years ago essentially it was published unofficially and lo and behold here we are like aircraft mishap rates are, are spiking and politicians are wondering like why and they're talking to these generals like Mike Mike Turner Ohio you know he's questioning these admirals and they're like well we'll look into each mishap I think each one's different and then Turner you know pretty smart he's like you know what like sometimes there's an accident in an intersection because people are stupid and then there's accidents because something's wrong with the intersection like he's like I feel like there's a deeper reason why we're crashing all these aircraft and he's right but you know, I sent sent him a copy of the book as well as you know half the members of the House Armed Services Committee and Senate Art and I haven't heard back. It's just I don't know if they just don't want to hear the, the truth or you know it's it's uncomfortable or, or whatever it is. But um, yeah, they, 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 you talk to the generals and like they're not where the rubber meets the road. Like, do they have to deal with you know filling out endless rosters and not having the resources? No. Like the last time, you know, General Rudder wiggled this. He's you know the. DC deputy compound of aviation right now. He was questioned too. Like, I don't know, when was the last time he flew in the early 2000s? I, I don't know, but it wasn't, you know, recently. So why are you asking the questions to, you know, the CEO about what's wrong, you know, at the manufacturing floor? You know what I mean? So that, I feel like that's a, a good analogy is like, well, I'm giving you an account of what things are really like in the military. And this is why we're crashing aircraft. This is why we don't have readiness. This is why things don't work. So that was my motive for writing was definitely to, uh, yeah, it was intentional to, 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 to pull no punches. Well, that's it for this time. You can learn more about military reform, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org Strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Military Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.